I want to welcome everybody back to the uh, podcast, Building Bridges. Uh, I'm Luis Sanchez. I'm here with my friends uh, and high school classmates from Huntington Park High School in 1972, Ray Pearson and Jan Watkin. Uh, the purpose of this podcast is to model and to foster civil discourse uh, along a range of uh, controversial um, and hopefully timely uh, issues. Today, we're going to talk about um, the uh, critical race theory and uh, free speech, really in the context of, of uh, racism and anti-racism politics. Um, so not the, our purpose is not to find a, a necessarily a right uh, answer, but simply to be able to engage in discourse and from time to time find common ground, but that's not essential either because sometimes we won't find common ground and then our intent is simply to be able to disagree with each other and still respect each other and re uh, retain our common bond. I should point out to you that uh, to the extent that any of us occupy institutional positions as uh, Ray and I do, uh, the viewpoints expressed herein are not intended to reflect our institutional roles. They are simply individual uh, opinions. And with that, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna toss a surprise to my partners here, to Ray and Jan, and ask them just to tell us a, a short, uh, in a brief nutshell, why it is that in Ray's case, he is a moderately conservative Republican, why it is that in Jan's case, she is a relatively uh, progressive Democrat. Um, Jan, I'll toss to you first. Sure. Uh, the first uh, Democrat that I worked for uh, in a campaign was George McGovern, who lost spectacularly. But I, I've always believed in um, Democrat liberal policy and still do. Right? Why is that? What, what, is it, what interest does that advance for you? Uh, I, I believe that being a social worker and always wanting to uh, be in a service field like that, um, I wanted to help people. I wanted to be there and be able to maybe uh, influence policy, but also help people in an immediate way. And that always formed my, um, my opinion about the Democratic Party being more concerned with people than with money. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. And Ray, mm -hmm. uh, I know that you were not always a conservative Republican. What, what mm -hmm. is it that appealed to you about that that political ideology? Well, uh, let me let me give some context why um, I became a Repu Republican. Um, I wasn't born into. Well, that's not true. Um, I was probably born more into a democratic family because I came from a family of, of second generation immigrants and my grandparents were from the old country and um, they tend to, they were like Roosevelt Democrats is essentially what they were at the time. So I grew up in that environment and I, you know, I thought it was great. Uh, it wasn't until after I got out of college and in fact changed careers from nonprofit and actually got into the business community and start seeing things a little differently than what I had been indoctrinated by, by the Democrat party about how businesses, uh, generally speaking, especially corporations were uh, insensitive, um, only profit uh, motivated, uh, willing to do whatever it takes to make money. And that, and that was not my experience as a business person running a uh, a business segment for a, a large corporation. 
at the time. And that started changing my opinion of that. But more so when I started looking historically uh, at the two parties, I said, wow, the Republicans line up more with my values, which were essentially that on, on the, which we're going to discuss today is on race relationship. It wasn't the Democratic Party. In fact, the Democratic Party were really behind slavery. And it was the Republican Party that was really behind uh, saying that slavery was not a good thing for this country and was willing to fight a civil war over it. And even after the Civil War, when there was still um, in the South in particular, and including Texas, uh, there was still uh, African-American people and were being treated badly, uh, that it was Ulysses S. Grant, a Republican president, who sent federal troops to say, you're not gonna hang black people. You're not going to do all the things that the Civil War was fought for and protected them. And so I had to look at that history, even though things have changed since the 1860s and, and say, so my experience with that, and then also as I went into the private sector and saw that, you know, how does business really positively affect? I worked for a company that had a social conscience. I had a, a company that took people and gave them an opportunity to progress and be uh, who might have been started off on a lower and got into management and their families benefited from it. The stockholders benefited and they weren't all rich stockholders. A lot of them were middle-class people who were stockholders. So it started changing my whole opinion of what I had been told uh, about that. And, and it pretty much, um, and then the, the really the, I guess the straw that broke the camel's back was when I saw big government versus small government. And I started getting involved, particularly um, in, in politics. And I saw that centralized large government doesn't always work as well as small local government. Uh, first of all, just, just logically speaking, you can get rid of people in small government a lot faster than you can in large government uh, for a variety of reasons in this country. And, and so I said, you know, they're more, more responsible, small government, not creating more and more government. Hence, I became a Republican. Thank you for that. And as both of you know, I've been an independent all my life. Probably my, my political independence was, uh, first of all, it's pro probably a bit of a psychological quirk in me that doesn't like to join a, an existing group, but rather prefers to sort of carve out his, his own uh, pathway it's been true in religion, it's been true in politics, it's been true in most of the walks of life I've occupied. But, but, but my, my uh, political independence was probably fostered uh, a little further by uh, taking constitutional law from Justice Anthony Kennedy when I was in my late 20s. And it, it gave me a certain uh, uh, sense about the, what the Constitution was intended to uh, preserve, uh, particularly the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments of the Bill of Rights uh, gave me a little bit of a of a of a idea about the way that I, government should ideally work and what it should refrain where it should refrain from working. Uh, although I, I have to say that I uh, that I probably vote Democrat more uh, much more often than Republican these days because uh, although Ray is absolutely right about the history of civil rights in this nation, it's also true that as of about the 50s and 60s, those positions have dramatically switched, and I always want, want to be on the very front lines uh, of civil rights. And that's not where I see the Republican Party having been since about the 50s or 60s. 
Uh, but I am, you know, I think I was born a capitalist. I think I'll always be a capitalist. It's in my nature and it's in the nature of a lot of immigrants who come to this nation as the land of opportunity because mm -hmm. they have a, an opportunity to, uh, to attain whatever level of success they're, they're able to do. So um, I, um, I, I, because of the topic that we're heading to, I'll just I'll launch it this way that I, I warn my friends on the, on the left, although I, as I just said, I wanna always be on the very front lines, and I mean that, of civil rights when any group or any individual is oppressed by virtue of being of their skin color or by being gay, by just by virtue of who they are as a human being, I wanna be at the front line of defending them. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that one of the great dangers of my friends on the left is for, uh, for overreach uh, and for orthodoxy, and both of those uh, are worrisome to me. So Ray, I'm gonna start with you and asking you just your general views on um, the state of racism in America uh, and the, uh, the attention that's been brought to anti-racism before we plunge into critical race theory itself. So, you know, I, I think by now you all know I, I kind of like history a little bit and I use that as context for my comments. So is racism still in the United States? Yes, there's still racism. Is it bad as it was in the 50s? No. Was it as bad as it was in the 60s? No. Um, there's been some great work and some great laws by both Democrats and Republicans in this country uh, to create um, what the Bill of Rights says and what the Constitution guarantees uh, in this country um, that hadn't been and, and still. Uh, and I think a lot of racism um, is now not just uh, overall the whole country. I think we see, we see uh, racism show up um, in different places, specific areas in this country to do that. And, and what, I'm what I'm suggesting is, you know, what I learned about racism was that it is the act of prejudice. It's the act of prejudice, not the attitude, uh, which is prejudice. It's the actual act. Uh, may it be in housing, may it be in policing, may it be in economics, uh, uh, jobs, uh, whatever it may be. And there's, if there is really um, an act that prevents people just because of their color or their race, um, prevents them to have equal access under the Constitution to anything, no matter what, then there's, that's, that's a racist act to do that. Not necessarily prejudice, but a racist to do that. So I think there's still work to be done. I think there's some great laws um, that have enacted, uh, especially in the 60s. Um, I also like to say on the military side that prior to that in World War II, there was a lot of racism in our military. Um, I think uh, presidents like Harry Truman, um, you know, made sure that, uh, hey, it didn't matter. We need fighting people, no matter what color they are. And then as we kind of progress, you know, uh, in the military, we saw, like in Israel, women fight side by side with men, and it doesn't matter uh, that. And I think, I think we've turned the corner a lot of that in the United States. And I think in our military ranks, um, anybody has an opportunity to succeed in the military, no matter what color or what race or what religion they are to do that. So my, my view is um, there is still racism in some places. 
Um, I, I do think there is, a, to Luis's comment, some overreach and overgeneralizations and some point finger pointing uh, that I disagree with. Um, you know, particularly when it starts pointing, you know, I, I'm more of a student of uh, Martin Luther King on the issue of racism. If we can't have everybody at the, at the dinner table or at the table together, no matter what color, and that they're equal, then it ain't gonna work in the conversation. So I see now it's like there's a movement to say, uh, to start blaming um, and start finger pointing. And a lot of it's finger pointed towards you know, white people, <laughs> you know, uh, but white people are not homogenous. White people are made up of different cultures and different backgrounds and different thinking. And to, that's as bad as saying that all black people think the same way or all Hispanic people think the same, or all native people think the same way. Boy, that, that's, that's as bad as that. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing some of that coming back they used to call it back in our high school reverse racism or, or, or it to me it's not reverse racism is racism no matter what color you are period i'll end there i, I would cool. also ask my friends on the left how effective it, it, it ends up being to do a lot of finger pointing it i i heard condoleezza rice once say the minute you call somebody a racist it just freezes the conversation it doesn't uh, it doesn't further the conversation but, but I would also say that it seems like, it seems to me, Ray, and we won't discuss it today because that would take up the entire time, but it does seem to me that some of the voter suppression laws that are being passed in the red states are directly, have a direct racist uh, 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 purpose uh, at heart. I'll get your opinion on that at some later point. I'm just going to note that for the moment. I'm going to pass to Jan at this point and ask you, Jan, I mean, since the, you know, the George Floyd moment was a was a period of reckoning, I think, for a lot of us and for America, and followed up with Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery as a reminder that racism not only is not dead and gone, but there might have been an even resurgence uh, of its ugly unleashing in the in the last few years. Your take? Well, my take on it is that you know, racism is not in pockets; it's not in different areas. It's embedded in our system. It's embedded in our government, in our laws, in our thinking. Um, and I think that critical race theory really is a scholarly attempt to look at that embedded racism within our culture, within our government, within our laws, to take a look at that and see what could be done about it. But uh, what's interesting is that a journalist by the name of Christopher Rufo, um, he's a very conservative uh, activist. He teamed up with Tucker Carlson and began doing some shows with Tucker Carlson about his ideas about critical race theory and began to sort of flip the whole notion of what, what this scholarly um, exploration of racism in this country was about and made it about what we teach our children. Now, critical race theory really is not being taught in K through 12. Uh, it's more of a social political uh, science kind of subject that is discussed in maybe colleges and other scholars, some writers but it's not something that's taught in schools. 
but they've made it sound like it is. Tucker Carlson and you know Rufo have both railed about this on his show uh, to the point that um, you know the president, the past president, uh, President Trump, uh, made some uh, you know legislation about that, uh, saying that it shouldn't be taught in schools. He he talked about it. Now everybody else has picked it up on uh, the conservative right. There are 25 states right now in the United States who are, have either passed legislation or have, are going to about not teaching critical race theory in schools, in K through 12 schools. I don't think it was being taught in schools. The, the issue that, that came up and what made Rufo and Tucker Carlson uh, look at this is that corporations were starting to do um, workshops and seminars and training on racial bias. And they didn't think that that was quite fair for corporate America to be doing that, I suppose, because of their own belief systems, which I won't judge. I'll just put it out there that it's a belief system that they both have. So when they did that, I think it started this incredible movement that somehow we are, we are teaching our children about racial biases. And I think really what this whole, uh, this whole movement has been about uh, against CRT um, is that it, it creates a lot of anxiety in white people. Uh, it's shifting social power relations in this country. I think people, white people, are really scared of that and don't want that to happen. Now, I'm not saying all white people, of course, but the people who are espousing these views and creating legislation and voting for this legislation, I think they're really scared, they're anxious that their power is gonna be taken away. And that's certainly been an issue for our country since way before the Civil War. Ray, I know that one of the, um, so, so one of the talking points on the conservative uh, end of the political spectrum uh, about cancel culture was that it was that, that the left was inhibiting free speech. And now I, I, don't you find it ironic that so many states are trying to uh, squelch the teaching of critical race theory as, as, as a, a, you know, a kind of a hypocritical attempt to squelch free speech there? No, I don't see it that way, Luis. And I don't see it the way Jan sees it. Here's what I see. I say, if you wanted to buy this country even more, just teach critical race theory. Because basically what you're gonna do is, is, is basically tell a, a bunch of kids, no matter what color they are, here's our problem in our country. And guess who it's gonna be pointed to? And, and I've heard this, and as a, a school board member, I, you know, I'm only speaking as an individual school board, I won't support critical race theory unless the Department of Education in California says I ha we have to do it by law. And I'll tell you why. I tell you, tell you why is that if you want to throw guilt on little kids and, and even middle school and high school kids, that's a great theory to do it with that. And, you know, as a second generation American, I had nothing to do with slavery, nothing. In fact, my family were going to be exterminated in Europe by a white guy named Adolf Hitler. Okay. So I, it's not out of fear. 
I don't think, as much as do you want to continue to create division in this country? And uh, we fought a civil war for that very same reason, division in this country. So, so me, what my position is, critical race theory doesn't bring the country together. It, it divides the country even further. Do we need to talk about, honestly, the uh, things that in this country have been wrong and teach our kids that slavery was wrong and African-Americans? But we better also be teaching Irish Americans were taught, taught treated badly when they came to this country. And when Jews came to this country, they were treated badly and Italians were treated badly. And, and I gotta tell you, immigrant, no matter what immigrant group, and when Mexicans came to this country across the border were treated poorly, you know, uh, in particular. I don't think you can take one silo. Now, do I say it was bad as slavery? No, slavery was worse than anything. Absolutely. I, I'm not gonna diminish the atrocities of slavery and post-slavery, by the way, of hanging and still hanging that. Absolutely, don't diminish it. And I think, but critical race theory is not just about teaching that. Critical race theory is, is, is basically saying because of how you have been institutionally thought, brought up and thinking about race, that you have a built-in prejudice towards a, and I'm not gonna agree with that. My kids, I have three kids. And by the way, they're mixed culture kids. They're not mixed race kids, they're mixed culture kids. So all I wanna say is they were not raised with prejudiced views. They weren't raised with saying uh, African-American people or all this. They are also raised with realizing that there are some realities still out there that people are judged by the color of their skin in this country to do that. But I don't think critical race theory is the solution to change that. Critical, critical race theory is not- Jen, can I just pass to you for a second? Sure. And, and I'm gonna bow out for just a minute. I've gotta uh, take care of something and I'll be right back with you, but it's in your sure. court. Okay. Critical race theory is not a synonym for culturally relevant teaching. It isn't. Uh, it's culturally relevant teaching is being is being taught in schools so that children learn how to be sensitive to cultures, race, backgrounds, socioeconomic groups. Uh, so that can affirm students' ethnic and racial backgrounds. And it's intellectually rigorous, I think, for children to think about how other cultures, how other races, how other people in the world live. But that's not critical race theory. Critical race theory is really a scholarly study and theory about race in this country. That's all it is. And I don't think that there's any place in this, in, in K through 12 schools in the United States is really being taught critical race theory because it's really scholarly. It's, it's mostly, um, you know, a theory and it's, um, not about what we teach our children, but it's been made to look like that so that people get up in arms and they start protesting and they think, oh my God, we want to change, you know, the way that, uh, you know, our children think. It's not. What's being taught in schools is culturally relevant teaching about all sorts of people around the world. That's what's being taught. So, the way I see it is this is much ado about nothing. 
and it's been changed by the conservative right into a you know flag-bearing protest over something that isn't happening. But I that's what we see with our ex-president. That's what we see with the conservative right. Um, and that's what we saw the day that the Capitol was um, insurrected. Thank you for that. And Ray, I have some resonance with the divisiveness of critical race theory, at least in, as practiced in some places. I, uh, but how do you reconcile it, the, the position of the far right with, or even the conservative red states with, with, the, with free speech? How do you reconcile telling uh, school systems they may not teach something? Doesn't it smack of, you may not teach evolution or anything else that, that you think has uh, negative tendencies? So, a great question. Um, I, I, I will say that, um, you know, I can speak for our, our district, uh, which is in California. I won't, I won't call it out, but uh, something we've embraced to answer that question so our K through 12 students are sensitized and understand is diversity, equality, and inclusion. And not only the students, but the teachers, the administrators, everybody on down. And I embrace that more than I do that. And I'll tell you why, because it's a lot more, the way it's executed is a lot more positive. It still doesn't throw blame in, in anyone's direction. What it says is we have more, we have more to gain by learning about each other's experiences and the things that get in the way of us of having e an equal experience in this country to that and that we open up a dialogue and, and, and you know that's got to be age appropriate I mean uh, obviously high school kids are going to be a lot more articulate and uh, a lot more introspective and, and can articulate a lot of it at the kindergarten level and elementary school level you know that 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 ex executed differently uh, to do that but it, it, is, it is about, you know, even the way the words we use and how we communicate. You know, I, I was grateful that I, I attended high school with you both and that our school was multiracial, multiethnic, and came, and even, even to a certain extent, not a great extent, but to a certain extent, even multi-economic. And there are some wealthy people, wealthy students we went to school with. I wasn't one of them single parent family, blue collar, mom had to work that to do that. Uh, but there were, there were other people that you know, came from housing projects that came to our school. And what I found was in that experience, I had a lot more in common with them than not in common. So I looked at them differently you know, in that experience um, uh, to do that. So I, you know, when I say, what created my thinking on that? I said a lot of it was how it was how my experience at Huntington Park High School was executed, and I got to give some credit. I got to give. Let me just. I'll just finish. Uh, sure. I just got to give some credit to even some of our teachers on how they facilitated my experience at Huntington Park High School, and you know, not trying to separate, not not try to exclude, not to say. You know, because you're this, you have more potential, you know, uh, those kinds of things. Um, that made a difference. 
you know, and, and I even <laughs> saw it in some of our, our classmates who succeeded, who were you know, African-American. And, and Luis, you're a good example. You went into law, you became a lawyer, and you're Hispanic, okay? So there, there's, you know, and I know several other, I mean, you know, I could go through a whole bunch of names of people that really did incredibly well academically as well as career-wise. But even as I agree with you, Ray, about the, the divisiveness of the way that sometimes critical race theory is taught, and maybe in its very roots to some extent also. Uh, so I, I tend to uh, have a lot of resonance with what you're saying, but I still, I still um, strain under the free speech uh, issue because if, if, if Sacramento, which as you know, tends to lean uh, pretty far left in its politics, if it were to tell schools uh, districts that they may not teach free market um, capitalism as uh, as their as as an economic theory, I mean, don't you assume that all of the conservatives would be up in arms about free speech? Just for me or for Jan? I know for it's you for still. <laughs> Same question. <laughs> I know it wasn't for Jan. Um, rather past it. Well, I th I think you know the answer on that one. I mean, uh, to do that. Uh, once again is, you know, what, what is, you know, you could start teaching socialism, right? Under the guise of free speech, Luis. But do we want it to start teaching, you know, and encouraging kids and making socialism sound really good? Is that really what we want to do? Or do we want to say, we'll teach socialism in its, in its full context of what it's done in this world and its success as a political system that, so, I hear your point about free speech and saying, you know, we should teach critical race theory under the free speech piece. I, I, I think there's, I, I love when the Supreme Court has made rulings about free, where free speech, where the line is drawn on free speech on that. It's kind of like pornography. You can argue that all pornography is protected under free speech. Could you not? Uh, you could, and and people have. Um, in theory, and, you could. But try to draw try to draw a line on critical race theory here, anywhere you want to try to draw it, um, and you're going to have a hard time justifying a left leaning legislature from being able to squelch the ideas that you stand for. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, critical race theory isn't being taught in schools. No, it's not. We, no. We're, it's being taught. Schools are being taught. Uh, children are being taught in schools about diversity and about racism. That's not critical race theory. No, no, it's not. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jan, on that. And I think it's a wow. good. I think that's great. We need to continue, and in California in particular, Chinese, mm -hmm. Japanese, you know, Native Americans you know, all have been subjected, subjugated in this, and, and wrongfully so. Mexican-Americans, mm -hmm. Jewish-Americans, it goes on and on and on. And I'm just talking about California, African-Americans, on and on and on. And we need to teach that. We need to say, this is what happened. And, but here's also is what has happened since then as well. Mm -hmm. I think I balance is important. I want to make it clear that I agree with a lot of what Ray is saying about this, that how the spirit mm -hmm. of critical race theory can be used uh, nefariously. It can, it can poison the very people it's trying to help. 
uh, by uh, creating further schisms in our society. And God knows we don't need further schisms in our society. But I struggle with the free speech issues and they're not quite- well, as What I struggle with is, is Americans, my, this is my opinion, are very passionate people, not dispassionate. And, it, and, and you know, it's been good for our country and at times it has caused some problems for our country, our passion. But I, I, I wouldn't say stop the passion because that's what's made America great and, and continues to keep the conversations going in this country is the passions. But it also can create some very divisiveness which ends up out on the streets. And that to me is not a good thing. I'm a, I'm a student of Martin Luther King and, and you know, which means is if you're gonna make social change, you do it peacefully, not with violence. And I'm afraid, you know, we, we've seen some of that out on the streets and, and the fear is even more so in the summer where as we're having this conversation, it's summertime 2021. All right, uh, words of wisdom. I'm gonna give the last word to Jan though because I think I've given Ray a little bit more of a- Yeah, thank you. Here, so. <laughs> Well, all I want to say is that um, I think that this, this issue is made much bigger than it really needs to be. Um, a scholarly academic theory that is discussed among professors and writers and theorists and philosophers is really not something relevant that we, we need to be worrying about with our children in school. And it's been made into this huge issue that doesn't even exist. Um, so for me, with all the legislation that is going about, you know, banning it from schools and people talking about it as, as though it is something heinous, um, I think it's just really sad because it's, it's missing the point. All right, thank you for that. Final word on this topic, and I told you both I was going to ask you a little bit about your life from 1987 to 1992. We are slowly getting caught up to the current day. Um, <laughs> I'll start with Ray. I think you should start with, uh, I think you should start, Luis. All right. You I'll, know, I'll all right. These were pivotal years for me. Uh, for one thing, it was in 19, let's see, I think 1980 when I graduated law school and started practicing law. 87 was just a year before my son was born. So I got married in the middle of law school. That was my first marriage. Uh, my son was born in 88. My law practice was uh, underway. Uh, and uh, then my daughter was born in 91. So those were pivotal years for um, creating and, and raising a family. And even though my first marriage didn't end up working out, we were together for about 16 years and got the kids to, um, oh, I think uh, maybe uh, middle school or late elementary school. So we made a go of it. Uh, there was certainly pain in the divorce. I will watch my kids through all time to see what, what effect that pain had on them long-term. Uh, but it was also uh, a great opportunity to um, to get to uh, know these two young individuals with whom I have a uh, immense bond. Uh, so they were, they were critical years in terms of that first marriage, critical years in terms of raising my, my kids at a very young age, uh, and critical years in terms of getting the law practice well-established. 
Who would like to go next? Yeah. So I think Jan should have an opportunity here. All right, Jan, you're up. All right. Uh, during that period of time, I was finishing up my working in uh, addiction recovery and as a clinical supervisor and working for the county uh, and, and private hospitals as well. Um, in that field, there's a high burnout rate. So I was working in that field for about eight years and that pretty much did me in. I started my private practice um, around that time also. And I was fortunate enough that that was a, a perfect time to start a private practice because insurance companies were paying for outpatient counseling and uh, psychotherapy. So I started a private practice uh, and built that up to be very successful and then was able to work full time uh, for myself and be self-employed. Uh, to this day, I am doing the same thing. Um, and it's my passion. I also uh, was in a relationship and have been for now 35 years and um, worked with my partner to create a lovely home and a lovely time together. Um, and I feel like I've been successful. You've really shored up that, that domestic tranquility part of the preamble to the Constitution, Jan, whereas Ray and I were more about the, um, the, the other parts of the preamble about uh, provide for the common defense. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've covered it all then. <laughs> How about you, Ray? How, what, what period of time was that for you? So, you know, I had to look back. Um, my second child was born in 1987. Um, I was living in Long Beach, Jan, at that time. Um, I was in a very high, uh, high stressful job working for an abusive boss. And I didn't know, I was trying to get out of the job and, and move on. Um, I actually got fired from the job. Um, which was actually a, a, a relief. Um, and then I, you know, I stayed in the industry, but I, I switched the side of the industry I was in in, in, in telecommunications. Uh, that marriage that I was in ended in, in that period of time, uh, but it was a very sad period of time because I had two children, mm -hmm. uh, young children. And uh, I was very much uh, conflicted because uh, not only because of my, you know, what I believe spiritually, but I was conflicted about the impact it would have on those kids. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it any longer. I just couldn't. Boy, do we have that in common, Ray? Too young. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. And, and I will not blame Huntington Park High School on that. Okay, on any of that part, even though we share that. But um, I had to find myself a little more uh, during that period of time. Uh, what was important to me, what my priorities were, and particularly in, rela in relationships. Um, I don't come from a family that is the best in relationships, to be honest with you, a lot of dysfunction in my family. Um, so my current wife and I found each other during that time. And we had a son, thank you. We had a son um, now, and we have, you know, we have three grown children together, and we have grandchildren now together. But during that time, there, there was a lot of soul searching um, and a lot of um, understanding relationship. What's, what works for me? Not making excuses. You know, a lot of immaturity that I, I think I took into marriages and a lot of uh, Cinderella complex I took into, uh, into marriage too as well. And, um, you know, that was, 
that was unfortunate, but and also about uh, not accepting abuse um, and not being okay with it, even even a workplace environment. Uh, I, I learned some things as well too uh, that carried me on even in, in management positions uh, later on in my career. Sounds like your boss practiced critical ray theory. <laughs> Uh, nice one, Luis. <laughs> nice. A, a secondary and distant function of this of this podcast, and that's uh, you know the, the the fact that we all come from Huntington Park High School, and we give our nods to our common experience. Part of what we're hoping to do is pass along some of the benefit of what we've learned through the School of Hard Knocks to uh, other students uh, as they progress. And so, some of the hard um, hard knock stories that we uh, have just alluded to haven't really gone deeply into them, but that we've all encountered, we hope uh, to be able to pass along occasional nuggets of, of wisdom and guidance for, for other students. I hope you found today's uh, podcast um, enlightening, uh, or at least entertaining, uh, and we hope to have you tune in to our very next one. We're going to sign off for now and wish you a great day.